Now let's turn to the scripture reading, which is from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. I was talking with a dear sister uh, in our community last week uh, during our in-person service, and um, she had plans on going to Hawaii for a few months uh, now that everyone is working from home and she has the ability to do so. But uh, after we announced that we were reopening up our church doors, uh, she decided not to go. And I can tell you, as someone that has surfed the emerald waters of Waikiki, uh, Hawaii is one of the most beautiful places in the world, but it is that type of love for our community and sacrifice and service that makes our community so special. So if you're here in person or, or joining us online, uh, I want to thank you for, for being with us today. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are starting a new series called Counterchism. Uh, debunking our secular narratives. Now let me uh, share a little bit of the reason why we're doing this series for the next eight weeks. Um, the late David Foster Wallace, who at one point was dubbed the next great American author, he once shared a story of two little fish that were swimming in the water. And as they're swimming across the ocean, an older fish swims by them and he says, morning boys, how's the water? And as the two young fish continue to swim along, uh, one of them says to the other, what's water? And the point of this story is that when we're immersed in something long enough, there comes a point where we no longer realize what we're immersed in. We stop seeing the very thing that we live in. And so the question that I want to ask for us today is this. What is our water? What is the thing that we are so immersed in that we no longer see what we are immersed in? And what I would say for us is that the ocean that we swim in, the air that we breathe, is our secular age or our secular culture. We are so immersed in this secular culture, we are completely unaware of how inoculated we are by our secular culture's messages on a 24-7 basis. And so whether it's through the news, our social media feed, uh, the things that we watch, the things that we read, what our peers and coworkers say, we are constantly being inoculated by our secular culture's messages, totally oblivious to us. And so what I wanna do for the next eight weeks is this. I wanna make these invisible secular narratives a lot more visible. 
And by making these invisible narratives a lot more visible, my hope is that as we expose what these narratives are, we will quickly come to realize that these things do not ultimately lead to the good life or our flourishing. And instead, what I want to do is to counter those catechisms or narratives with a biblical framework on how to live, and that by aligning our lives to what the Word of God says, that this is the way that we experience the good life. This is the way that we flourish. And the way that I want to begin this series is by taking a look at our existence. How do we get here and our origin? And out of the eight things that we're going to be talking about for the next few weeks, our origin perhaps culture is the least dogmatic about. I would say that 15, 20, 30 years ago, our culture was much more dogmatic about how we got here, our origins, but I would say that nowadays, our culture is not as dogmatic about that. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, uh, but what I do know is that we have to start in the beginning. The German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche once said that if our origin comes from nothing and our outcome is to nothing, then all we are is sandwiched between two nothings contemplating about nothingness. And he's right. If our origin comes from nothing, then all we are is a grown-up. All we are is a sophisticated baboon, or as the French poet Voltaire would say, all we are are tormented atoms lying in a bed of mud, devoured by death and a mockery of fate. And yet what the Bible would is that we are not just grown-up germs, we're not just sophisticated baboons, but rather we were made with intentionality. We are not just a cosmic accident, but we are made in the image of God and we are his sons and daughters and therefore our lives matter greatly. And so what I want to do is to show the biblical narrative of our origin and to flesh out the Bible's teachings on our existence by taking a look at the Gospel of John. Now, for those of you who don't know who John is, out of the 12 disciples, John was perhaps the closest disciple to Jesus. You know, what's really interesting to me is that on Good Friday, when Jesus is hanging on the cross and all of the disciples abandon and desert him, at the foot of the cross stood one disciple, and that was John. And so as is hanging on the cross, he says to John, John, can you take care of my mother? As he's hanging on the cross, he asks John in particular to take care of his mother, and then he tells his mother, here now is your son, please take care of him. And so if there's anyone qualified to really talk about the life of Jesus and to talk about the inside stories of the life of Jesus, it is John. And so it's no coincidence that when you take a look at the Gospels, when we take a look at all four, usually we think that they're all the same, but when you take a look at the Gospel of John, 90% of what John wrote is completely different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Let me give you an example of this. When Mark starts his Gospel, he begins with Jesus' life at the age of 30 when he begins his public ministry. When you take a look at Matthew's introduction, he begins with the birth of Jesus. So not at the age of 30, but the birth of Jesus and Jesus' family tree going back to Abraham. When you take a look at Luke's introduction, he also begins with the birth of Jesus, but he doesn't go back to Abraham for his genealogy. He goes all the way back to Adam. But when you take a look at John's gospel, he doesn't begin with Jesus at the age of 30. 
He doesn't begin with the birth of Jesus dating back to Abraham. He doesn't even begin with the birth of Jesus dating all the way back to Adam. John begins his gospel with the fact that Jesus has always existed, that he's existed prior to you and I being made. He existed prior to even the Milky Way being made. He goes all the way back. And if you take a look with me at verses 1 and 2, it says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now, as we take a look at this very uh, famous verse, one of the questions that we have to ask ourselves is, should I use that? Okay, so one of the questions that we have to ask ourselves is, uh, as we take a look at this word, word, uh, one of the things that we have to ask ourselves is, what does this word, word, mean? Because when something says in the beginning of the wor- is the word, it's, it sort of doesn't really mi- resonate with us. So when you take a look at the Greek, the word, word that is used here is the word logos, from where we get the word logic. And so the Greeks loved reason and logic. And so they're constantly looking for the logos behind different things. And what's interesting is that prior to 500 years prior to John was a philosopher named Heraclitus. And Heraclitus was the first one to popularize the word logos. And for Heraclitus, the word logos simply meant the reason why. So uh, imagine you have a Wagyu steak that's really nice and marbled. And to cook this Wagyu steak, you take an iron and you begin to cook the steak. You would say, what are you doing? You don't understand the, the lo- uh, for the iron. You don't understand the logos for the iron or for the steak for that matter. And so the word logos is the reason why. And so Heraclitus says that whenever you look at things, you should always look for the logos behind something. Go back to, okay. Is that better? Okay. So he says that you should always look for the for the logos behind something. So, for example, if you're taking a look at um, physical life, uh, Heraclitus would say, look for the logos behind that physical life, or biologos, or biology. When you're studying the mind or the psyche, look for the logos behind that thing, or the psyche logos, or psychology. Or if you're taking a look at uh, society, look for the logos behind the society or it's sociologos or sociology. So Heraclitus was always saying that you should look the logo behind. (laughs) Is that better? Okay. So he says that you should constantly be looking for the logos behind uh, different things. And so when we take a look at John though, what he says is that we should not only look for the logos behind a specific thing, a specific discipline, but what John says is this, what is the logos behind everything? And so the Greeks knew that there was a logos to the universe, but they didn't know who to attribute this logos to. And so if you take a look at verse one again, it says this, in the beginning was the logos. 
And so whatever this logos is, we know that it has always existed. It's, never, it's, it's uncreated. It's always existed. And when you read further, it says that in the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God. And so that means that whatever the, this logos is, it's, it's a distinct person from God. And in fact, when you take a look at a dynamic translation of this verse, it says that the logos was face to face with God. But then this verse goes on to say that in the beginning was the logos, the logos was with God, and then it says that the logos was God. And so not only is the logos distinct, but he is one and the same as God himself. And we get a clue of who this logos is later on in verse 14 when it says that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word became flesh, the logos actually became human and dwelt amongst us. And what that verse is ultimately pointing to is who Jesus is. I think sometimes we forget that Jesus' name was not always Jesus. Jesus got his name when he became incarnate in the flesh, but what was his name prior to him becoming incarnate? He was the Logos, as John would say. And so what does the Logos do? If you take a look at verse 3, it says this, Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And so in Christianity, Jesus Christ is the transformative, creative agent behind everything. Through him, all things are made, and nothing was made that has been made apart from him. This is the Christian narrative of our beginning and our origin. Jesus Christ is the creative agent. Now, what is the secular narrative about how we came to be? Well, if you take a look at page two of your uh, bulletin, I want to read you something from Stephen Hawking. And Hawking says, in the grand design, because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and, can and will create itself from nothing. Spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing, why the universe exists and why we exist. And so what Hawking is talking about here is the fact that the universe miraculously came to be by a virgin birth. And so what that means is that there's actually a lot of commonality between secular materialists and Christians because Christians, as Glenn Scribner would say, also believe in a virgin birth, the virgin birth of Christ. But secular materialists also believe in a virgin birth, that something came from nothing, and that is the virgin birth of the universe. And so Glenn Scribner says, both people believe in a virgin birth, choose your miracle. And so there's a lot of commonality. The difference, of course, is that if gravity is ultimately the one that made us, at the end of the day, it does mean that you are an accident. Your life doesn't really have meaning or intention or purpose. You might have small purposes, right? Soccer mom, soccer dad, you're an entrepreneur. You have small purposes in your life, but you don't have ultimate meaning and ultimate purpose in your life. But what the Christian narrative is saying is this, you are not a cosmic accident. And therefore, your life has tremendous worth and value because you were created with meaning and intentionality. And this is the reason why agnostic thinkers like Neil Postman, who used to teach at uh, NYU, has such a hard time embracing the secular narrative of creation. So if you take a look at the second quote, this is what Postman says in an article he entitled, Science and the Story That We Need. And Postman says this, but in the end, 
Science does not provide the answers most of us require. Again, keep in mind that he is not religious, he's an agnostic. Its story of our origins and of our end is, to say the least, unsatisfactory. To the question, how did it all begin, science answers probably by an accident. To the question, how will it all end, science answers probably by an accident. And to many people, the accidental life is not worth living. Moreover, the science God has no answer to the question, why are we here? And to the question, what moral instructions do you give us? The science God maintains silence. So where shall we find such a story? I was listening to a, um, a Jordan Peterson interview and uh, if you're unfamiliar with Jordan Peterson, he's a Canadian psychologist. And regardless of what you might think about Peterson, what we can all agree on is the fact that he does seem to be on this lifelong quest to find what the story of life is ultimately about. And in an interview he recently gave, he said this. He said, is it possible for the real world and the narrative world, a narrative world with magic and fairy tales and myths? Is it possible for the real world and this narrative world to actually come and touch? And Peterson said that if it is possible, the best explanation for this point of contact is Jesus Christ, God who became incarnate, God who entered into our world and became flesh. Now the question is, why in the world would he do that? Why would the creator enter into creation and become like one of us? Well, if you take a look at verses four and five, it says this, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Usually the Greek word that is used here for life is the word bios, which means biological life, but the word that is used here for life is the word zoe. And the word zoe means much more than biological life. It means eternal life. It means spiritual life. And here it says that in him is eternal life. And so what that means is that Jesus is not only the creator of everything physical, but he's also the creator of all things eternal and spiritual as well. And this is also the reason why Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the zoe, the life. But not only is Jesus, this logos, the life, the creator of everything, but what we also see is that he is the light of all mankind. In the fall of 2010, there were 33 Chilean miners that were trapped underneath 2,000 feet of solid rock. I don't know if you remember this story, but the only exit out of this mine was sealed shut. And so for two months, these 33 Chilean miners were trapped in the cold and dark abyss of this mine for two months recognizing that their only hope of salvation could not come from below. They were 2,000 feet from underneath the rock. They realized that their only hope of salvation had to come from above. And two months later, 
all of a sudden from the top of the mine, they see a crack of light. And that life penetrates into the darkness and overcomes the darkness. And because of that light and that opening, the 33 miners were lifted from the dark abyss. And when, when you hear a story like that, it's hard not to think about the story of Christianity and what the gospel is about. In many ways, the dark, cold abyss of this mine is a representation of the world that we live in today. A dark world filled with disease, racism, passivity in the face of injustice, inequality. It is a dark world that we live in, but it is not only a dark world that we live in, but our own hearts are equally just as dark. I find it very interesting that the moment and the one time the immortal God becomes mortal, we kill him. The one time in history the eternal God becomes vulnerable, we kill him. Plato once said that when a perfect person walks into an imperfect society, you have two options. You can worship them or you can kill them. And we see this happening historically through perfect but somewhat imperfect people like Martin Luther King, who was also assassinated all the way back to the person of Jesus Christ himself, who was the most perfect person that has ever lived. And yet the reason why Jesus entered into our society was not just to give us biological life, but the reason why he came was to give us Zoe, eternal life. And the way that he does this is by the author of life giving up his life for every single one of us to pay the penalty for our sins but not only paying the penalty for our individual sins, but also redeeming the world and the cosmos that we live in too by busting out of the grave on Easter. The only way of conquering death is by tasting it first and then resurrecting. And that is what he did last week on Easter Sunday. And you know what that means? What that means is this, that God is not only the one that created us, but he's also the one that loves us the most. You don't know how much a God loves you unless you know what they're willing to give up and sacrifice for you. And in Christianity, Jesus Christ gave up his own life for every single one of us. And so here's what that practically means for us on a day-to-day -day basis then. I cannot tell you how many people I've talked to this past year during this pandemic who have said that their lives, their lives felt like it was pushed on pause particularly socially and romantically, and even in terms of their career. I cannot tell you how many people I feel, I've talked to in our own community who feel like they don't know what they are doing with their lives. And I frequently say um, at our church that what we believe about tomorrow shapes how we live today. But not only does what we believe about tomorrow shape how we live today, what we believe about yesterday also shapes how we live today. If it is true that we are not just a cosmic accident, but God intentionally made you, that there is a logos behind your existence, a reason why, you know what that means? You cannot abandon him when you don't know the reason why things are happening the way they are right now. If there is an ultimate purpose and a reason you were made, we must hold him fast 
even when we don't understand things and things are foggy in our life. If you trusted him back then, you cannot stop trusting him now, and not only now, but to the end of your life. And you know what? He not only has a purpose for your existence right now, but a plan for all of eternity. So how can we stop trusting him in the middle? We cannot. So let me close with um, something that Plato is attributed with saying, although we are not quite sure. But Plato once said that we can easily forgive a child who is afraid of the dark. The real tragedy in life is when men are afraid of the light. And I can tell you, uh, as someone that got about three hours of sleep last night because my daughter had nightmares and was afraid of the dark, we can forgive a child for being afraid of the dark. But the real tragedy is when adults are afraid of the light. And sometimes we are so saturated and immersed in this dark world, we are too afraid to know and to experience what this light can offer. But I can tell you that the reason why you are here today is that there is a purpose behind everything from the moment that you were born in your mother's womb till now. And because of that, that does change everything. And this is what I'm talking about when I say that Christianity offers us more of the good life and more flourishing than our secular narratives ever can. You are not a grown-up germ or a sophisticated baboon. You are a child of God who loves you very much. Please pray with me.